Barack, meanwhile, came home from Bali looking tan and carrying a satchel stuffed with legal pads, having converted his isolation into a literary victory. The book was basically finished. Within a matter of months, his agent had resold it to a new publisher, paying off his debt and securing a plan for publication. More important to me was the fact that within a matter of hours, we'd return to the easy rhythm of our newlywed life. Barack was here, done with his solitude, landed back in my world. My husband. He was smiling at the jokes I made, wanting to hear about my day, kissing me to sleep at night. As the months went by, we cooked, worked, laughed, and planned. Later that spring, we had our finances in order enough to buy a condo, moving out of 7436 South Euclid Avenue and into a pretty railroad-style apartment in Hyde Park with hardwood floors and a tiled fireplace, a new launch pad for our life. With Barack's encouragement, I took another risk and switched jobs again this time saying goodbye to Valerie and Susan at City Hall in order to finally explore the kind of nonprofit work that had always intrigued me, finding a leadership role that would give me a chance to grow. There was still plenty I hadn't figured out about my life. The riddle of how to be both a Mary and a Marian remained unsolved. But for now, all those deeper questions drifted out to the margins of my mind where they'd sit dormant and unattended for the time being. Any worries could wait, I figured, because we were an us now, and we were happy. And happy seemed like a starting place for everything. Thirteen. My new job made me nervous. I'd been hired to be the executive director for the brand new Chicago chapter of an organization called Public Allies, which itself was basically brand new. It was something like a startup inside a startup, and in a field in which I had no professional experience to speak of. Public Allies had been founded only a year earlier in Washington, D.C., and was the brainchild of Vanessa Kirsch and Katrina Brown, who were both just out of college and interested in helping more people find their way into careers in public service and nonprofit work. Barack had met the two of them at a conference and become a member of their board, eventually suggesting they get in touch with me regarding the job. The model was similar to what was being used at Teach for America, which itself was relatively new at the time. Public allies recruited talented young people gave them intense training and committed mentorship, and placed them in paid 10-month apprenticeship positions inside community organizations and public agencies, the hope being that they'd flourish and contribute in meaningful ways. The broader aim was that these opportunities would give the recruits, allies we called them, both the experience and the drive to continue working in the nonprofit or public sector for years to come thereby helping to build a new generation of community leaders. For me, the idea resonated in a big way. I still remembered how during my senior year at Princeton, 
So many of us had marched into MCAT and LSAT exams or suited up to interview for corporate training programs without once, at least in my case, considering or maybe even realizing that a wealth of more civic-minded job options existed. Public Allies was meant as a corrective to this, a means of widening the horizon for young people thinking about careers. But what I especially liked was that its founders were focused less on parachuting Ivy Leaguers into urban communities and more on finding and cultivating talent that was already there. You didn't need a college degree to become an ally. You needed only a high school diploma or GED to be older than 17 and younger than 30 and to have shown some leadership capability, even if thus far in life it had gone largely untapped. Public Allies was all about promise, finding it, nurturing it, and putting it to use. It was a mandate to seek out young people whose best qualities might otherwise be overlooked and to give them a chance to do something meaningful. To me, the job felt almost like destiny. For every moment I'd spent looking wistfully at the south side from my 47th floor window at Sidley, Here was an invitation, finally, to use what I knew. I had a sense of how much latent promise sat undiscovered in neighborhoods like my own, and I was pretty sure I'd know how to find it. As I contemplated the new job, my mind often traveled back to childhood, and in particular, the month or so I'd spent in the pencil-flying pandemonium of that second-grade class at Bryn Mawr Elementary, before my mom had the wherewithal to have me plucked out. In the moment, I'd felt nothing but relieved by my own good fortune, but as my luck in life seemed only to snowball from there, I thought more about the 20 or so kids who'd been marooned in that classroom, stuck with an uncaring and unmotivated teacher. I knew I was no smarter than any of them, I just had the advantage of an advocate. I thought about this more often now that I was an adult, especially when people applauded me for my achievements, as if there weren't a strange and cruel randomness to it all. Through no fault of their own, those second graders had lost a year of learning. I'd seen enough at this point to understand how quickly even small deficits can snowball too. Back in Washington, D.C., the Public Allies' founders had mustered a fledgling class of 15 allies who were working in various organizations around the city. They'd also raised enough money to launch a new chapter in Chicago, becoming one of the first organizations to receive federal funding through the AmeriCorps Service Program created under President Clinton, which is where I came into the picture, thrilled and anxious in equal parts. Negotiating the terms of the job, though, I'd had what maybe should have been an obvious revelation about nonprofit work. It doesn't pay. I was initially offered a salary so small, so far below what I was making working for the city of Chicago, which was already half of what I'd been earning as a lawyer, that I literally couldn't afford to say yes, which led to a second revelation about certain nonprofits 
especially young person-driven startups like Public Allies and many of the big-hearted, tirelessly passionate people who work in them. Unlike me, it seemed they could actually afford to be there, their virtue discreetly underwritten by privilege, whether it was that they didn't have student loans to pay off or perhaps had an inheritance to someday look forward to and thus weren't worried about saving for the future. It became clear that if I wanted to join the tribe, I'd have to negotiate my way in, asking for exactly what I needed in terms of a salary, which was significantly more than public allies had expected to pay. This was simply my reality. I couldn't be shy or embarrassed about my needs. I still had roughly $600 of student debt to pay off each month on top of my regular expenses. And I was married to a man with his own load of law school loans to cover. The organization's leaders were almost disbelieving when I informed them how much I'd borrowed in order to get through school and what that translated to in terms of monthly debt. But they gamely went out and secured new funding that enabled me to come on board. And with that, I was off and running, eager to make good on the opportunity I'd been handed. This was my first chance ever, really, to build something basically from the ground up. Success or failure would depend almost entirely on my efforts, not those of my boss or anyone else. I spent the spring of 1993 working furiously to set up an office and hire a small staff so that we could have a class of allies in place by the fall. We'd found cheap office space in a building on Michigan Avenue, and we'd managed to get a load of donated secondhand chairs and tables from a corporate consulting firm that was redecorating its offices. Meanwhile, I had leveraged more or less every connection Barack and I'd ever made in Chicago, seeking donors and people who could help us secure longer-term foundation support, not to mention anyone in the public service field who'd be willing to host an ally in their organization for the coming year. Valerie Jarrett helped me arrange placements in the mayor's office and the city health department, where allies would work on a neighborhood-based childhood immunization project. Barack activated his network of community organizers to connect us with legal aid, advocacy, and teaching opportunities. Various Sidley partners wrote checks and helped introduce me to key donors. The most exciting part for me was finding the allies themselves. With help from the national organization, we advertised for applicants on college campuses across the country while also looking for talent closer to home. My team and I visited community colleges and some of the big urban high schools around Chicago. We knocked on doors in the Cabrini Green Housing Project, went to community meetings and canvassed programs that work with single mothers. We quizzed everyone we met, from pastors to professors to the manager of the neighborhood McDonald's, asking them to identify the most interesting young people they knew. Who were the leaders? Who was ready for something bigger than what he or she had? These were the people we wanted to encourage to apply, urging them to forget for a minute 
whatever obstacles normally made such things impossible, promising that as an organization, we'd do what we could, whether it was supplying a bus pass or a stipend for childcare, to help cover their needs. By fall, we had a cohort of 27 allies working all over Chicago, holding internships everywhere from City Hall to a Southside Community Assistance Agency to Latino Youth, an alternative high school in Pilsen. The allies together were an eclectic, spirited group, loaded with idealism and aspirations and representing a broad swath of backgrounds. Among them, we had a former gang member, a Latina woman who'd grown up in the southwest part of Chicago and had gone to Harvard, another woman in her early 20s who lived in the Robert Taylor homes and was raising a child while also trying to save money for college, and a 26-year-old from Grand Boulevard who'd left high school but had kept up his education with library books and later gone back to earn his diploma. Each Friday, the whole group of allies gathered at one of our host agency's offices, taking a full day to debrief, connect, and go through a series of professional development workshops. I loved these days more than anything. I loved how the room got noisy as the allies piled in, dumping their backpacks in the corner and peeling off layers of winter wear as they settled into a circle. I loved helping them sort through their issues, whether it was mastering Excel, figuring out how to dress for an office job, or finding the courage to voice their ideas in a room full of better educated, more confident people. I sometimes had to give an ally less than pleasant feedback. If I'd heard reports of allies being late to work or not taking their duties seriously, I was stern in letting them know that we expected better. When allies grew frustrated with poorly organized community meetings or problematic clients at their agencies, I counseled them to keep perspective, reminding them of their own relative good fortune. Above all, though, we celebrated each new bit of learning or progress, and there was lots of it. Not all the allies would go on to work in the nonprofit or public sectors, and not everyone would manage to overcome the hurdles of coming from a less privileged background. But I've been amazed over time to see how many of our recruits did, in fact, succeed and commit themselves long-term to serving a larger public good. Some became public ally staff themselves, some are now even leaders in government agencies and inside national nonprofit organizations. 25 years after its inception, Public Allies is still going strong, with chapters in Chicago and two dozen other cities and thousands of alumni around the country. To know that I played some small part in that, helping to create something that's endured, is one of the most gratifying feelings I've had in my professional life. I tended to public allies with the half-exhausted pride of a new parent. I went to sleep each night thinking about what still needed to be done and opened my eyes every morning with my mental checklist for the day, the week, and the month ahead already made. 
After graduating our first class of 27 allies in the spring, we welcomed a new set of 40 in the fall and continued to grow from there. In hindsight, I think of it as the best job I ever had for how wonderfully on the edge I felt while I was doing it and for how even a small victory, whether it was finding a good placement for a native Spanish speaker or sorting through someone's fears about working in an unfamiliar neighborhood, had to be thoroughly earned. For the first time in my life, really, I felt I was doing something immediately meaningful, directly impacting the lives of others while also staying connected to both my city and my culture. It gave me a better understanding, too, of how Barack had felt when he'd worked as an organizer or on Project Vote, caught up in the all-consuming primacy of an uphill battle, the only kind of battle Barack loved, the kind he would always love, knowing how it can drain you while at the same time giving you everything you'll ever need. While I was focused on public allies, Barack had settled into what was, by his standard anyway, a period of relative tameness and predictability. He was teaching a class on racism in the law at the University of Chicago Law School and working by day at his law firm, mostly on cases involving voting rights and employment discrimination. He still sometimes ran community organizing workshops as well, leading a group of Friday sessions with my cohort at Public Allies. Outwardly, it seemed like a perfect existence for an intellectual, civic-minded guy in his 30s who'd flatly turned down any number of more lucrative and prestigious options in favor of his principles. He'd done it as far as I was concerned. He'd found a noble balance. He was a lawyer, a teacher, and also an organizer, and he was soon to be a published author, too. After returning from Bali, Barack had spent more than a year writing a second draft of his book during the hours he wasn't at one of his jobs. He worked late at night in a small room we'd converted to a study at the rear of our apartment, a crowded, book-strewn bunker I refer to lovingly as the hole. I'd sometimes go in, stepping over piles of paper to sit on the ottoman in front of his chair while he worked, trying to lasso him with a joke and a smile, to tease him back from whatever far-off fields he'd been galloping through. He was good-humored about my intrusions, but only if I didn't stay too long. Barack, I've come to understand, is the sort of person who needs a hole a closed-off little warren where he can read and write undisturbed. It's like a hatch that opens directly onto the spacious skies of his brain. Time spent there seems to fuel him. In deference to this, we've managed to create some version of a hold inside every home we've ever lived in. Any quiet corner or alcove will do. To this day, when we arrive at a rental house in Hawaii or on Martha's Vineyard, Barack goes off looking for an empty room that can serve as the vacation hole. There he can flip between the six or seven books he's reading simultaneously and toss his newspapers on the floor. For him, 
The whole is a kind of sacred high place where insights are birthed and clarity comes to visit. For me, it's an off-putting and disorderly mess. One requirement has always been that the whole, wherever it is, have a door so that I can shut it, for obvious reasons. Dreams from My Father was published finally in the summer of 1995. It got good reviews, yet sold only modestly, but that was okay. The important thing was that Barack had managed to process his life story, snapping together the disparate pieces of his Afro-Kansan-Indonesian-Hawaiian-Chicagoan identity. Writing himself into sort of a wholeness this way, I was proud of him. Through the narrative, he'd managed a kind of literary peace with his phantom father. The work to get there had been one-sided, of course, with Barack alone trying to fill every gap and understand every mystery the senior Obama had ever created. But this was also in keeping with how he'd always done it anyway. Since the time he was a boy, I realized, he'd tried to carry everything all on his own. With the book finished, there was new space in his life, and also, in keeping with who he'd always been, Barack felt compelled to fill it immediately. On the personal side, he'd been coping with difficult news. His mother, Anne, had been diagnosed with ovarian cancer and had moved from Jakarta back to Honolulu for treatment. As far as we knew, she was getting good medical care and the chemotherapy seemed to be working. Both Maya and Toot were helping look after her in Hawaii and Barack checked in often. But her diagnosis had come late, after the cancer had advanced, and it was difficult to know what would happen. I knew this weighed heavily on Barack's mind. In Chicago, meanwhile, the political chatter was starting to kick up again. Mayor Daley had been elected to a third term in the spring of 1995, and now everyone was gearing up for the 1996 election, in which Illinois would select a new U.S. senator and President Clinton would make his bid for a second term. More scandalously, we had a sitting U.S. congressman under investigation for sex crimes, leaving an opening for a new Democratic contender in the state's second district, which included much of Chicago's South Side. A popular state senator named Alice Palmer, who represented Hyde Park and South Shore, and whom Barack had gotten to know while working on Project Vote, had begun saying privately that she intended to run for it which in turn would leave her state Senate seat vacant, opening up the possibility that Barack could run for it. Was he interested? Would he run? I couldn't have known it then, but these questions would come to dominate the next decade of our lives, pulsing like a drumbeat behind almost everything we did. Would he? Could he? Was he? Should he? But ahead of these always came another question posed by Barack himself, preliminary and supposedly preemptive when it came to running for office of any sort. The first time he asked it, 
was on the day he'd let me know about Alice Palmer and her open seat. And this notion he had that maybe he could be not just a lawyer, professor, organizer, author, but all those things plus a state legislator as well. What do you think about it, Mish? For me, the answer was never actually all that tough to come up with. I didn't think it was a great idea for Barack to run for office. My specific reasoning might have varied slightly each time the question came back around, but my larger stance would hold, like a sequoia rooted in the ground, though clearly you can see that it stopped absolutely nothing. In the case of the Illinois Senate in 1996, my reasoning went like this. I didn't much appreciate politicians and therefore didn't relish the idea of my husband becoming one. Most of what I knew about state politics came from what I read in the newspaper, and none of it seemed especially good or productive. My friendship with Santita Jackson had given me a sense that politicians were often required to be away from home. In general, I thought of lawmakers almost like armored tortoises, leather-skinned, slow-moving, thick with self-interest. Barack was too earnest, too full of valiant plans, in my opinion, to abide by the hard scrabble, drag-it-out rancor that went on inside the domed capital downstate in Springfield. In my heart, I just believed there were better ways for a good person to have an impact. Quite honestly, I thought he'd get eaten alive. Already, however, there was a counter-argument brewing in the recesses of my own conscience. If Barack believed he could do something in politics, who was I to get in his way? Who was I to stomp on the idea before he'd even tried it? After all, he was the lone person who had waved me forward when I wanted to leave my law career, who'd had his concerns about my going to City Hall but supported me nonetheless, and who right now was working multiple jobs, partly to compensate for the pay cut I'd taken to become a full-time do-gooder at Public Allies. In our six years together, he hadn't once doubted my instincts or my capabilities. The refrain had always been the same. Don't worry, you can do this. We'll figure it out. And so I gave my approval to his first run for office, larding it with a bit of wifely caution. I think you'll be frustrated, I warned. If you end up getting elected, you're going to go down there and nothing will get accomplished, no matter how hard you try. It'll drive you crazy. Maybe, Barack said with a bemused shrug. But maybe I can do some good. Who knows? That's right, I said, shrugging back. It wasn't my job to interfere with his optimism. Who knows? This won't be news to anyone, but my husband did become a politician. He was a good person who wanted to have an impact in the world, and despite my skepticism, he decided this was the best way to go about it. Such is the nature of his faith. Barack was elected to the Illinois Senate in November 1996 and sworn in two months later at the start of the following year, 
To my surprise, I enjoyed watching the campaign unfold. I'd helped collect signatures to put him on the ballot, knocking on doors in my old neighborhood on Saturdays, listening to what residents had to say about the state and its government, all the things they thought needed fixing. For me, it was reminiscent of the weekends I'd spend as a child trailing my dad as he climbed up all those porch steps, going about his duties as a precinct captain. Beyond this, I wasn't much needed, and that suited me perfectly. I could treat campaigning like a hobby, picking it up when it was convenient, having some fun with it, and then getting back to my own work. Barack's mother had passed away in Honolulu shortly after he announced his candidacy. Her decline had been so swift that he hadn't made it there to say goodbye. This crushed him. It was Anne Dunham who'd introduced him to the richness of literature and the power of a well-reasoned argument. Without her, he wouldn't have felt the monsoon downpours in Jakarta or seen the water temples of Bali. He might never have learned to appreciate how easy and thrilling it was to jump from one continent to another or how to embrace the unfamiliar. She was an explorer, an intrepid follower of her own heart. I saw her spirit in Barack in big and small ways. The pain of losing her sat lodged like a blade in both of us right alongside the blade that had been embedded when we'd lost my dad. Now that it was winter and the legislature was in session, we were separated for a good part of every week. Barack drove four hours to Springfield on Monday nights and checked into a cheap hotel where a lot of the other legislators stayed, usually returning late on Thursday. He had a small office in the State House and a part-time staffer in Chicago, He'd scaled back his work at the law firm, but as a way of keeping pace with our debts, he'd added more courses to his teaching load at the law school, scheduling classes for days he wasn't in Springfield, and teaching more when the Senate wasn't in session. We spoke on the phone every night he was downstate, comparing notes and swapping tales about our respective days. On Fridays back in Chicago, we had a standing date night, usually meeting downtown at a restaurant called Zinfandel after we'd both finished up work. I remember these nights with a deep fondness now for the low, warm lights of the restaurant and how it had become predictable that, with my devotion to punctuality, I'd always be the first to show up. I'd wait for Barack, and because it was the end of the work week and because I was accustomed to it at this point, It didn't bother me that he was late. I knew he'd get there eventually, and that my heart would leap as it always did, seeing him walk through the door and hand his winter coat off to the hostess before threading his way through the tables, grinning when his eyes finally landed on mine. He'd kiss me and then take off his suit jacket, draping it on the back of his chair before sitting down. My husband. The routine settled me. We ordered the same thing pretty much every Friday, pot roast, Brussels sprouts, and mashed potatoes. And when it came, we ate every bite. 
This was a golden time for us, for the balance of our marriage, him with his purpose and me with mine. During a single early week of Senate business in Springfield, Barack had introduced 17 new bills, possibly a record, and at the very least a measure of his eagerness to get something done. Some would ultimately pass, but most would get quickly picked off in the Republican-controlled chamber, downed by partisanship and a cynicism passed off as practicality among his new colleagues. I saw in those early months how, just as I'd predicted, politics would be a fight, and the fight would be wearying, involving standoffs and betrayals, dirty deal-makers and compromises that sometimes felt painful. But I saw, too, that Barack's own forecast had been correct as well. He was strangely suited to the tussle of lawmaking, calm inside the maelstrom, accustomed to being an outsider, taking defeats in his easy Hawaiian stride. He stayed hopeful, insistently so, convinced that some part of his vision would someday, somehow, manage to prevail. He was getting battered already, but it wasn't bothering him. It did seem he was built for this. He'd get dinged up and stay shiny like an old copper pot. I, too, was in the midst of a transition. I'd taken a new job, surprising myself somewhat by deciding to leave Public Allies, the organization I'd put together and grown with such care. For three years, I'd given myself to it with zeal, taking responsibility for the largest and the smallest of operational tasks, right down to restocking paper in the photocopier. With Public Allies thriving and its longevity all but assured, thanks to multi-year federal grants and foundation support, I felt that I could now step away in good faith. And it just so happened that in the fall of 1996, a new opportunity had cropped up almost out of nowhere. Art Sussman, the lawyer at the University of Chicago who'd met with me a few years earlier, called to let me know about a position that had just been created there. The school was looking for an associate dean to focus on community relations, committing at long last to do a better job of integrating with the city and most especially the South Side neighborhood that surrounded it, including through the creation of a community service program to connect students to volunteer opportunities in the neighborhood. Like the position at Public Allies, this new job spoke to a reality I'd lived personally. As I told Art years earlier, the University of Chicago had always felt less attainable and less interested in me than the fancy East Coast schools I'd ultimately attended, a place with its back turned to the neighborhood. The chance to try to lower those walls, to get more students involved with the city and more city residents with the university, was one I found inspiring. All inspiration aside, there were underlying reasons for making the transition. The university offered the kind of institutional stability that a still newish nonprofit could not. My pay was better, my hours would be more reasonable, 
And there were other people designated to keep paper in the copier and fix the laser printer when it broke. I was 32 years old now and starting to think more about what kind of load I wanted to carry. On our date nights at Zinfandel, Barack and I often continued a conversation we'd been having in one form or another for years about impact, about how and where each one of us could make a difference, how best to apportion our time and energy. For me, some of the old questions about who I was and what I wanted to be in life were starting to drift in again, fixing themselves at the forefront of my mind. I'd taken the new job in part to create a little more room in our life, and also because the health care benefits were better than anything I'd ever had. And this would end up being important. As Barack and I sat holding hands across the table in the candle glow of another Friday night in Zinfandel, with the pot roast polished off and dessert on its way, there was one big wrinkle in our happiness. We were trying to get pregnant, and it wasn't going well. It turns out that even two committed go-getters with a deep love and a robust work ethic can't will themselves into being pregnant. Fertility is not something you conquer. Rather maddeningly, there's no straight line between effort and reward. For me and Barack, this was as surprising as it was disappointing. No matter how hard we tried, we couldn't seem to come up with a pregnancy. For a while, I told myself it was simply an issue of access, the result of Barack's comings and goings from Springfield. Our attempts at procreation took place not in service of important monthly hormonal markers, but rather in concert with the Illinois legislative schedule. This, I figured, was one thing we could try to fix. But our adjustments didn't work, even with Barack flooring it up the interstate after a late vote so that he could hit my ovulation window, and even after the Senate went into its summer recess and he was home and available full-time. After many years of taking careful precautions to avoid pregnancy, I was now singularly dedicated to the opposite endeavor. I treated it like a mission. We had one pregnancy test come back positive, which caused us both to forget every worry and swoon with joy. But a couple of weeks later, I had a miscarriage, which left me physically uncomfortable and cratered any optimism we'd felt. Seeing women and their children walking happily along a street, I'd feel a pang of longing followed by a bruising wallop of inadequacy. The only comfort was that Barack and I were living only about a block from Craig and his wife, who now had two beautiful children, Leslie and Avery. I found solace in dropping by to play and read stories with them. If I were to start a file on things nobody tells you about until you're right in the thick of them, I might begin with miscarriages. A miscarriage is lonely, painful, and demoralizing, almost on a cellular level. When you have one, you will likely mistake it for a personal failure, which it is not, or a tragedy, 
which regardless of how utterly devastating it feels in the moment, it also is not. What nobody tells you is that miscarriage happens all the time to more women than you'd ever guess, given the relative silence around it. I learned this only after I mentioned that I'd miscarried to a couple of friends who responded by heaping me with love and support and also their own miscarriage stories. It didn't take away the pain, but in unburying their own struggles, they steadied me during mine, helping me see that what I'd been through was no more than a normal biological hiccup, a fertilized egg that, for what was probably a very good reason, had needed to bail out. One of these friends also steered me toward a fertility doctor whom she and her husband had used. Barack and I went for exams, and when we later sat down with the doctor, he told us there was no discernible issue with either of us. The mystery of why we weren't getting pregnant would remain just that. He suggested that I try taking Clomid, a drug meant to stimulate egg production, for a couple of months. When that didn't work, he recommended we move to in vitro fertilization. We were inordinately lucky that my university health insurance would cover most of the bill. It felt like having a high-stakes lottery ticket, only with science involved. By the time the preliminary medical work was finished, rather unfortunately, the state legislature had returned to its fall session, swallowing up my sweet, attentive husband and leaving me largely on my own to manipulate my reproductive system into peak efficiency. This would involve giving myself a regimen of daily shots over the course of several weeks. The plan was I'd administer first one drug to suppress my ovaries and then later a new drug to stimulate them, the idea being that they'd then produce a cascade of viable eggs. All the work and uncertainty involved made me anxious, but I wanted a baby. It was a need that had been there forever. As a girl, when I'd grown tired of kissing the vinyl skin of my baby dolls, I'd begged my mother to have another baby, a real one just for me. I promised I'd do all the work. When she wouldn't go along with the plan, I hunted through her underwear drawer, searching for her birth control pills, figuring that if I confiscated them, maybe it would yield some results. It didn't, obviously. But the point is, I'd been waiting for a long time for this. I wanted a family, and Barack wanted a family, too. And now here I was, alone in the bathroom of our apartment, trying in the name of all of that want to screw up the courage to plunge a syringe into my thigh. It was maybe then that I felt a first flicker of resentment involving politics and Barack's unshakable commitment to the work. Or maybe I was just feeling the acute burden of being female. Either way, he was gone and I was here, carrying the responsibility. I sensed already that the sacrifices would be more mine than his. In the weeks to come, he'd go about his regular business while I went in for daily ultrasounds to monitor my eggs. He wouldn't have his blood drawn. He wouldn't have to cancel any meetings to have a cervix inspection.
He was doting and invested, my husband, doing what he could do. He read all the IVF literature and would talk to me all night about it. But his only actual duty was to show up at the doctor's office and provide some sperm. And then if he chose, he could go have a martini afterward. None of this was his fault, but it wasn't equal either. And for any woman who lives by the mantra that equality is important, this can be a little confusing. It was me who'd alter everything, putting my passions and career dreams on hold to fulfill this piece of our dream. I found myself in a small moment of reckoning. Did I want it? Yes, I wanted it so much. And with this, I hoisted the needle and sank it into my flesh. About eight weeks later, I heard a sound that erased all traces of resentment. A swishing, watery heartbeat picked up on ultrasound, emanating from the warm cave of my body. We were pregnant. It was for real. Suddenly, the responsibility and relative sacrifice meant something completely different, like a landscape taking on new colors or all the furniture in a house being rearranged so that now everything appeared perfectly in place. I walked around with a secret inside of me. This was my privilege, the gift of being female. I felt bright with the promise of what I carried. I would feel this way right through, even as first trimester fatigue left me drained as my job stayed busy and Barack continued making his weekly treks to the state capitol. We had our outward lives, but now there was something inward happening, a baby growing, a tiny girl. Because Barack's a fact guy and I'm a planner, finding out her gender was obligatory. We couldn't see her, but she was there, gaining in size and spirit, as fall became winter and then became spring. That thing I'd felt, my envy for Barack's separateness from the process, had now utterly reversed itself. He was on the outside while I got to live the process. I was the process, indivisible from the small burgeoning life that was now throwing elbows and poking my bladder with her heel. I was never alone, never lonely. She was there, always, while I was driving to work or chopping vegetables for a salad or lying in bed at night poring over the pages of what to expect when you're expecting for the 900th time. Summers in Chicago are special to me. I love how the sky stays light right into the evening, how Lake Michigan gets busy with sailboats, and the heat ratchets up to the point that it's almost impossible to recall the struggles of winter. I love how in summer the business of politics slowly starts to go quiet and life tilts more toward fun. Though really we'd had no control over anything, somehow in the end it felt as if we'd timed it all perfectly. Very early in the morning, on July 4th, 1998, I felt the first twinges of labor. 
Barack and I checked into the University of Chicago Hospital, bringing both Maya, who'd flown in from Hawaii to be there the week I was due, and my mom for support. It was still hours before the barbecue coals would start to blaze across the city, and people would spread their blankets on the grass along the lakeshore, waving flags and waiting for the spectacle of the city fireworks to bloom and boom over the water. We'd miss all of it that year anyway lost in a whole new blaze and bloom. We were thinking not about country, but about family, as Malia Ann Obama, one of the two most perfect babies ever to be born to anyone, anywhere, dropped into our world. Fourteen. Motherhood became my motivator. It dictated my movements, my decisions, the rhythm of every day. It took no time, no thought at all, for me to be fully consumed by my new role as a mother. I'm a detail-oriented person, and a baby is nothing if not a reservoir of details. Barack and I studied little Malia, taking in the mystery of her rosebud lips, her dark fuzzy head, an unfocused gaze, the herky-jerky way she moved her tiny limbs. We bathed and swaddled her and kept her pressed to our chests. We tracked her eating, her hours of sleep, her every gurgle. We analyzed the contents of every soiled diaper as if it might tell us all her secrets. She was a tiny person, a person entrusted to us, I was heady with the responsibility of it, fully in her thrall. I could lose an hour just watching her breathe. When there's a baby in the house, time stretches and contracts, abiding by none of the regular rules. A single day can feel endless, and then suddenly, six months have blown right past. Barack and I laughed about what parenthood had done to us. If we'd once spent the dinner hour parsing the intricacies of the juvenile justice system, comparing what I'd learned during my stint at Public Allies with some of the ideas he was trying to fit into a reform bill in the legislature, we now, with no less fervor, debated whether Malia was too dependent on her pacifier and compared our respective methods for getting her to sleep. We were, as most new parents are, obsessive, and a little boring, and nothing made us happier. We hauled little Malia in her baby carrier with us to Zinfandel for our Friday night dates, figuring out how to streamline our order so we could be in and out quickly before she got too restless. Several months after Malia was born, I returned to work at the University of Chicago. I negotiated to come back only half-time, figuring this would be a win-win sort of arrangement, that I could now be both career woman and perfect mother, striking the Mary Tyler Moore, Marion Robinson balance I'd always hoped for. We'd found a babysitter, Glorina Casabal, a doting expert caregiver about 10 years older than I was. Born in the Philippines, she was trained as a nurse and had raised two kids of her own. Glorina, Glow, was a short, bustling woman with a short, practical haircut and gold wire-rimmed glasses who could change a diaper in 12 seconds flat. 
She had a nurse's hypercompetent do-anything energy and would become a vital and cherished member of our family for the next few years. Her most important quality was that she loved my baby passionately. What I didn't realize, and this would also go into my file of things many of us learn too late, is that a part-time job, especially when it's meant to be a scaled-down version of your previously full-time job, can be something of a trap. Or at least that's how it played out for me. At work, I was still attending all the meetings I always had while also grappling with most of the same responsibilities. The only real difference was that I now made half my original salary and was trying to cram everything into a 20-hour week. If a meeting ran late, I'd end up tearing home at breakneck speed to fetch Malia so that we could arrive on time, Malia eager and happy, me sweaty and hyperventilating, to the afternoon wiggle worms class at a music studio on the north side. To me, it felt like a sanity-warping double bind. I battled guilt when I had to take work calls at home. I battled a different sort of guilt when I sat at my office, distracted by the idea that Malia might be allergic to peanuts. Part-time work was meant to give me more freedom, but mostly it left me feeling as if I were only half doing everything, that all the lines in my life had been blurred. Meanwhile, it seemed that Barack had hardly missed a stride. A few months after Malia's birth, he'd been re-elected to a four-year term in the state Senate, winning with 89% of the vote. He was popular and successful, and plate spinner that he was, he was also starting to think about bigger things, namely running for the U.S. Congress, hoping to unseat a four-term Democrat named Bobby Rush. Did I think it was a good idea for him to run for Congress? No, I did not. It struck me as unlikely that he'd win, given that Rush was well-known and Barack was still a virtual nobody. But he was a politician now and he had traction inside the state Democratic Party. He had advisors and supporters, some of whom were urging him to give it a shot. Somebody had conducted a preliminary poll that seemed to suggest maybe he could win. And this I know for sure about my husband. You don't dangle an opportunity in front of him, something that could give him a wider field of impact, and expect him just to walk away. Because he doesn't, he won't. At the end of 1999, when Malia was almost 18 months old, we took her to Hawaii at Christmas time to visit her great-grandmother, Toot, who was now 77 years old and living in the same small high-rise apartment she'd been in for decades. It was meant to be a family visit, the one time each year Toot could see her grandson and great-granddaughter. Winter had once again clapped itself over Chicago, siphoning the warmth from the air and the blue from the sky. Feeling antsy both at home and at work, we'd booked a modest hotel room near Waikiki Beach and started counting down the days. Barack's teaching duties at the law school had wrapped up for the semester, and I'd put in for time off at my job. But then politics got in the way. 
The Illinois Senate was hung up in a marathon debate, trying to settle on the provisions of a major crime bill. Instead of breaking for the holidays, it went into a special session with the aim of pushing through to a vote before Christmas. Barack called me from Springfield, saying we'd need to delay our trip by a few days. This wasn't great news, but I understood it was out of his hands. All I cared was that we eventually got there. I didn't want Toot spending Christmas alone, and beyond that, Barack and I needed the downtime. The trip to Hawaii, I was figuring, would separate both of us from our work and give us a chance to simply breathe. He was now officially running for Congress, which meant that he rarely switched off. He would later give an interview to a local paper, estimating that during the six or so months he campaigned for Congress, he spent less than four full days at home with me and Malia. This was the painful reality of campaigning. On top of his other responsibilities, Barack lived with a ticking clock, one that incessantly reminded him of the minutes and hours remaining before the March primary. How he spent each of those minutes and hours could at least in theory affect the eventual outcome. What I was learning, too, was that in the eyes of a campaign operation, any minutes or hours a candidate spends privately with family are viewed basically as a waste of that valuable time. I was enough of a veteran now to try to keep myself largely disengaged from the daily ups and downs of the race. I'd given Barack's decision to run a wan blessing, adopting a let's-just-get-this-out-of-the-way attitude about the whole thing. I thought maybe he'd try and fail to get into national politics and that this would then motivate him to want to try something entirely different. In an ideal world, my ideal world anyway, Barack would do something like become the head of a foundation where he could have an impact on issues that mattered and also make it home for dinner at night. We flew to Hawaii on December 23rd after the legislature finally hit pause for the holiday, though it still hadn't managed to find a resolution. But to my relief, we'd made it. Waikiki Beach was a revelation for young Malia. She tootled up and down the shoreline, kicking at the waves and exhausting herself with joy. We spent a merry, uneventful Christmas with Toot in her apartment, opening gifts and marveling at her devotion to the 5,000-piece jigsaw puzzle she had going on a card table. As it always had, Oahu's languid green waters and cheery populace helped unhitch us from our everyday concerns, leaving us blissful and caught up in little more than the feeling of warm air on our skin and our daughter's delight at absolutely everything. As the headlines kept reminding us, we were fast approaching the dawn of a new millennium, and we were in a lovely place to spend the final days of 1999. All was going fine until Barack got a call from someone back in Illinois, letting him know that the Senate was somewhat abruptly going back into session to finish work on the crime bill. If he intended to vote, he had something like 48 hours to get back to Springfield. Another clock was now ticking. With a sinking heart, I watched as Barack jumped into action 
rebooking our flights to leave the following day, pulling the plug on our vacation. We had to go. We had no choice. I suppose I could have stayed on alone with Malia, but what would be the fun in that? I wasn't happy with the idea of leaving, but I understood again this was the way of politics. The vote was an important one. The bill included new gun control measures, which Barack had fervently supported, and it had also proven divisive enough that a single absent senator could potentially prevent the bill from passing. We were going home. But then something unexpected happened. Overnight, Malia spiked a high fever. She'd ended the day as an exuberant surf kicker, but was now, not even 12 hours later, a hot, listless heap of toddler-shaped misery, glassy-eyed and wailing in pain, but still too young to tell us anything specific about it. We gave her Tylenol, but it didn't help much. She was tugging at one ear, which made me suspect it was infected. The reality of what this meant started to set in. We sat on the bed, watching Malia drift into a restless, uncomfortable sleep. We were only a matter of hours now from our flight home. I saw the worry deepening on Barack's face, caught as he was in the cross-currents of his opposing obligations. What we were about to decide went far beyond the moment at hand. She can't fly, I said, obviously. I know. We have to switch the flights again. I know. Unspoken was the fact that he could just go. He could walk out the door and catch a cab to the airport and still make it to Springfield in time to vote. He could leave his sick daughter and fretting wife halfway across the Pacific and go join his colleagues. It was an option, but I wasn't going to martyr myself by suggesting it. I was vulnerable, I'll admit, swimming in the uncertainty of what was going on with Malia. What if the fever got worse? What if she needed a hospital? Meanwhile, around the world, there were more paranoid people than us readying fallout shelters, hoarding cash and jugs of water just in case the worst of the Y2K predictions came true and the power and communication grids went on the fritz due to buggy computer networks unable to register the new millennium. It wasn't going to happen, but still. Was he really thinking about leaving? It turns out he wasn't. He didn't. He would never. I didn't listen to the call he made to his legislative aide that day, explaining that he'd missed the crime bill vote. I didn't care. I was just focused on our girl. And as soon as Barack got off that call, he was too. She was our little human. We owed everything to her first. In the end, the year 2000 arrived without incident. After a couple of days of rest and some antibiotics, what indeed had turned out to be a nasty ear infection for Malia cleared up, returning our toddler to her normal bouncy state. Life would go on. It always did. On another perfect blue sky day in Honolulu, we boarded a plane and flew home to Chicago, back into the chill of winter, and into what for Barack was shaping up to be a political disaster.
The crime bill had failed to pass the state legislature, losing by five votes. For me, there was no math to do. Even if Barack had made it back from Hawaii in time, his vote almost certainly wouldn't have changed the outcome. Still, he took a beating for his absence. His opponents in the congressional primary pounced on the opportunity to depict Barack as some kind of bon vivant lawmaker who'd been on vacation in Hawaii, no less, and hadn't deigned to come back to vote on something as significant as gun control. Bobby Rush, the incumbent congressman, had tragically lost a family member to gun violence in Chicago only a few months earlier, which cast Barack in an even poorer light. Nobody seemed to register that he was from Hawaii, that he'd been visiting his widowed grandmother, or that his daughter had fallen ill. All that mattered was the vote. The press hammered on it for weeks. The Chicago Tribune's editorial page criticized the group of senators who hadn't managed to vote that day, calling them a bunch of gutless sheep. Barack's other opponent, a fellow state senator named Donnie Trotter, took his own shots, telling a reporter that to use your child as an excuse for not going to work also shows poorly on the individual's character. I wasn't accustomed to any of this. I wasn't used to having opponents or seeing my family life scrutinized in the news. Never before had I heard my husband's character questioned like that. It hurt to think that a good decision, the right decision as far as I was concerned, seemed to be costing him so much. In a column he wrote for our neighborhood's weekly newspaper, Barack calmly defended his choice to stay with me and Malia in Hawaii. We hear a lot of talk from politicians about the importance of family values, he wrote. Hopefully you will understand when your state senator tries to live up to those values as best he can. It seemed that with the fickleness of a child's earache, Barack's three years of work in the state Senate had been all but wiped away. He'd led an overhaul of state campaign finance laws that ushered in stricter ethics rules for elected officials. He'd fought for tax cuts and credits for the working poor and was focused on cutting prescription drug costs for senior citizens. He'd earned the trust of legislators from all parts of the state, Republican and Democrat alike. But none of the real stuff seemed to matter now. The race had devolved into a series of low blows. From the start of the campaign, Barack's opponents and their supporters had been propagating unseemly ideas meant to gin up fear and mistrust among African-American voters suggesting that Barack was part of an agenda cooked up by the white residents of Hyde Park, read white Jews, to foist their preferred candidate on the South Side. Barack is viewed in part to be the white man in black face in our community, Donnie Trotter told the Chicago Reader. Speaking to the same publication, Bobby Rush said, He went to Harvard and became an educated fool. We're not impressed with these folks with these Eastern elite degrees. He's not one of us, in other words. Barack wasn't a real black man like them. Someone who spoke like that 
look like that, and read that many books could never be. What bothered me most was that Barack exemplified everything parents on the South Side often said they wanted for their kids. He was everything people like Bobby Rush and Jesse Jackson and so many black leaders had talked about for years. He'd gotten his education, and rather than abandoning the African-American community, he was now trying to serve it. This was a heated election, sure, but Barack was being attacked for all the wrong things. I was astonished to see how our leaders treated him only as a threat to their power, inciting mistrust by playing on backward anti-intellectual ideas about race and class. It made me sick. Barack, for his part, took it more in stride than I did, having already seen in Springfield how nasty politics could get and how the truth was so often distorted to serve people's political aims. Bruised but unwilling to give up, he continued through the winter, making his weekly trips back and forth to Springfield while trying earnestly to beat back the storm even as donations began to dwindle and more and more endorsements went to Bobby Rush. With the clock ticking down to the primary, Malia and I hardly saw him at all, though he called us every evening to say goodnight. I was more grateful than ever for those few stolen days we'd had on the beach. I knew that in his heart, Barack was too. What never got lost inside all the noise inside all those nights he'd spent away from us, was that he cared. He took none of it lightly. I caught a trace of agony in his voice nearly every time he hung up the phone. It was almost as if every day he were forced to cast another vote between family and politics, politics and family. In March, Barack lost the Democratic primary in what ended up being a resounding victory for Bobby Rush. All the while, I just kept hugging our girl. And then came our second girl. Natasha Marion Obama was born on June 10, 2001, at the University of Chicago Medical Center. After a single round of IVF, a fantastically simple pregnancy, and a straightforward delivery, while Malia, now almost three, waited at home with my mom. Our new baby was beautiful, a little lamb child with a full head of dark hair and alert brown eyes, the fourth corner to our square. Barack and I were over the moon. Sasha, we planned to call her. I'd chosen the name because I thought it had a sassy ring. A girl named Sasha would brook no fools. Like all parents, I found myself wanting so much for our children, praying that nothing would ever hurt them. My hope was that they'd grow up to be bright and energetic, optimistic like their father, and hard-driving like their mom. More than anything, I wanted them to be strong, to have a certain steeliness, the kind that would keep them upright and forward-moving no matter what. I didn't know a thing about what was coming our way, how our family's life would unfold, whether everything would go well 
or everything would go poorly, or whether, like most people, we'd get a solid mix of both. My job was to make sure they were ready for it. My stint at the university had left me feeling worn out, putting me in a far-from-perfect juggle while also straining our finances with the expense of child care. After Sasha was born, I debated whether I even wanted to return to my job at all, thinking that maybe our family would be better served if I stayed home full-time. Glow, our beloved babysitter, had been offered a higher-paying nursing job and had reluctantly decided she needed to move on. I couldn't blame her, of course, but losing Glow rearranged everything in my working mother's heart. Her investment in my family had allowed me to maintain my investment in my job. She loved our kids as if they were her own. I'd wept and wept the night she gave her notice knowing how hard it would be for us to balance without her. I knew how fortunate we were to have the resources to hire her in the first place. But now that she was gone, it felt like losing an arm. I loved being with my little daughters. I recognized the value of every minute and hour put in at home, especially with Barack's schedule being so irregular. I thought once again of my mother's decision to stay home with me and Craig. Surely I was guilty of romanticizing her life, imagining it had actually been fun for her to pine saw the windowsills and make all our clothes. But compared with the way I'd been living, it seemed quaint and manageable, and possibly worth trying. I liked the idea of being in charge of one thing rather than two, of not having my brain scrambled by the competing narratives of home and work. And it did seem that we could swing it financially. Barack had moved from an adjunct position to a senior lecturer at the law school, which gave us a tuition break at the university's lab school, where Malia was soon to start preschool. But then came a call from Susan Schur my former mentor and colleague at City Hall, who is now general counsel and vice president at the University of Chicago Medical Center, where we just had Sasha. The center had a brand new president whom everyone was raving about, and one of his top priorities was improving community outreach. He was looking to hire an executive director for community affairs, a job that seemed almost custom-made for me, was I interested in interviewing? I debated whether to even send in my resume. It sounded like a great opportunity, but I had just basically talked myself into the idea that I was, that we all were better off with my staying home. In any event, this was not a moment of high glamour for me, not a time I could really imagine blow-drying my hair and putting on a business suit. I was up several times a night to nurse Sasha, which put me behind on sleep and therefore sanity. Even as I was still rather fanatically devoted to neatness, I was losing the battle. Our condo was strewn with baby toys, toddler books, and packages of diaper wipes. Any trip outside the house involved a giant stroller and an unfashionable diaper bag full of the essentials, 
a Ziploc bag of Cheerios, a few everyday toys, and an extra change of clothes for everyone. But motherhood had also brought with it a set of wonderful friendships. I'd managed to connect with a group of professional women and form a kind of chatty, hands-on social cluster. Most of us were deep into our 30s and working in all sorts of careers, from banking and government to nonprofits. Many of us were having children at the same time. The more children we had, the tighter we grew. We saw one another nearly every weekend. We looked after each other's babies, went on group outings to the zoo, and bought bulk tickets for Disney on Ice. Sometimes on a Saturday afternoon, we just set the whole pack of kids loose in somebody's playroom and cracked open a bottle of wine.